0: We don't have a House and a Senate that operates the way you used to be able to understand it and what we would have learned in our American civics classes. What you have is a cartel that largely operates behind closed doors. The members that do have a say are committee chairmen and leadership. They're part of the cartel. Who doesn't have a say is the rank-and-file members, which is why members come to Congress and they're like, this is terrible. We didn't have any desire to be a part of an institution where we have no say.
1: Welcome back to The Narrative. Mike Andrews, Aaron Baird, David Mahan joining you for another episode this week. And gentlemen, after the way things started last week, I'm boycotting the, the intro to this episode. I tried to start us off straight. I got hijacked. There's just, there's no oh, winning with you, you two. You not start us off straight. That's the whole point. Sorry. <laughs> See, here we go again. Here we go again. And we to, leave it to Aaron Bear to just take us down that path. He been on this one minute. Oh my goodness. Well, we are going to talk about the prevalence of boycotts that are going on seemingly everywhere these days. Is this something that Christians should be engaging and how can we think through these, these issues, these retailers, uh, in the moment that we're in, as we essentially endorse some of these ideas that they're promoting with our checkbooks and with our wallets. You know,
2: what do you think,
3: man? Yeah, I, I think one of the greatest worldview statements we can make as families, right, especially Christian families, is what we do with our wallets, yeah. right? How we spend our money, right? So we can sit around at the barbershop and talk about all of our values and worldviews and faith. Um, But really, when it comes down to it, you know, where do you spend your money? That That is kind of what, what really matters, um, and and I think we should be doing some boycotts. I I think I, I like the boycott thing. I just I just don't think that should be the only thing we do. All right, now when we're talking about boycotting Chick Fil A, I mean that's that's the Lord's chicken, right? And so I think <laughs> on that level, we might need to put some more thought. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay.
0: no,
2: I mean, I, yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, baseline. I, I agree with that, David. I, I think. Um, we, we just in, in, in church on Sunday, we had a, a message on, on Romans 14, right? Uh, and you know, it, it talks, uh, about, you know, that there's the whole conversation there about what food do you eat, whether you eat it or not. And, and um, and I think this is, is really, um, prescriptive for this whole conversation around boycotts, mm-hmm. right? Uh, because I, I do think to, to David's point, right? I, I think there is, um, uh, well, first and foremost, I don't think there's anything uh, sinful about a boycott, right? Um, and but I, I do also think too, in a lot of cases, there are certainly be some things that you say, yeah, I, I'm I'm going to boycott a porn shop, right? I'm going to I'm going to boycott a you know uh, a, a marijuana uh, shop or something like that, right? There There's some things like that that are are, are pretty simple, um, but I think there's some things that we need to be careful on of saying, hey, you know. I'm deciding not to spend my money here, and if you don't agree with me on this, then you're you're living in sin right i I think we have to be careful about some of those things um as a actual strategy though um, you know this is something i I'll, I'll be real yeah you know, open about this. this is something at, from the c c v level um I've struggled with at times, which is you know when do we call like when do we go out of our way to call for for boycotts, right? And this was something that was very much our bread and butter, you know, before my time, especially in the the eighties and nineties and early two thousands. That that we did with with quite a bit of effectiveness, um, which was you know boycott uh, call for boycotts of of hotels that were were playing pornography or things like that, or or you know, there's really like famous CCB stories of uh, of moms going into Kroger and finding pornographic magazines and leading protests and boycotts of, of Kroger's until they took out the, uh, the porn. Right. And, and, and so there, there's been effective ways of that, but we've seen some of that over time diminishing its effectiveness. And so from even just from somebody who's leading an organization, a, a Christian public policy organization, I've been hesitant at times to call for a boycott. Cause I think as a, as a, as a strategy, it only works if. You actually can make the retailer feel pain, right? Um, and, and there's nothing a, as, as bad of a, a strategy as when you say, hey, we're going to do something to you, and then it doesn't make a difference, right? Um, so th- these are all the thoughts that, that I've always sort of evaluated both as, as the head of CCV, but also as an as a individual Christian consumer on when I participate in a boycott or not.
1: And it seems like there's a line here of having it be something that's prescriptive or maybe turning into groupthink where it's just, what's the latest thing we're going to boycott today? And, And that's not necessarily helpful. But there's also, I think, an apologetic element to this where if we can accurately articulate or articulate well why we are boycotting this thing, then it gives us an opportunity to bring a little salt and light to the conversation that otherwise May just have a whole lot of heat around it because people think we're only offended because for the sake of being offended. But in actuality, there there's some uh, deep convictions that are behind our decision of how we are spending our money.
3: Yeah, I, I think what I'm hearing in this conversation is that th- there's nothing wrong with the boycott. It's just the strategy. Right. Mm-hmm. So if every. Everybody decides they're going to jump on social media and they're going to lead a boycott. Then it's not effective, right? right. I mean, remember yeah. a lot of the things that you were talking about, Aaron, in terms of the um, you know Kroger's and the hotels. You know those were done at times where social media wasn't, you know, probably wasn't around. I mean, you're pretty old, but <laughs> I, I. But now we've got now we've got the power of social media, right? And so and so I'm thinking that could be very effective. I mean, I what twenty some billion dollars lost by the uh, the beer company here recently yeah, by by, by Anheuser Busch, right? Yeah. So I think if, if if done by the right people with the right influence, um, I think it could be very effective. And just from you know, like you're saying, Mike, just from just the bottom bottom line of why would I support this organization is dumping so much money into harming youth and families or whatever the issue may be, right? Um, you know, the, the target thing where, you know, I mean, it's not just that they support what they support. It's that children frequent target, right? Right. With moms and children frequent target, and they have to go down these aisles where it's all about, you know, the, the demonic form of a rainbow, right? right? And what they support. And that, to me i just if i don't want to support it right. right i and on the other side of things i think we need to be boycotting some of these uh state representatives and and senators that aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing as well we can call that a censure uh but but it is also a boycott in my book well th- to to that end uh to to the first point well <laughs> we'll
1: put a pin put a pin in the second point so we're going to cover the first one right now and we'll get back to exactly uh you
2: know when 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 our our policy team meetings bleed into the narrative podcast uh anyway to to the first point though they you know i think that's you know again you look at the the two real places where you know honestly in in the last 10 years these are the first two real boycotts that i feel like i've seen actually be effective yeah um on bud light slash Anheuser bush um because of the and i forget what what his name, I think it's Dylan Mulvaney, Mulvaney, whatever mm-hmm. the, the the guy that says he's a a lady that they put on the can, uh, and then uh, and then the target situation, you know, in I'll, in both of those, one, you it, it was a a real sort of organic groundswell um, that that rose up against it, which made it really you know really effective, um, you know, from from my perspective, it it's easy to boycott Bud Light because I'm not drinking Bud Light anyway, but I think broadly Anheuser Busch, you know. Uh, is saying we're not going to have any of their, their their beers. Um, but to the target one, I mean, this was the, the again, b- both as there's, there's me, the, the head of CCV, but also me, the dad, uh, and, and my, my wife. The conversation we had about this was we don't want to take our, our, our girls into Target right now, uh, because, uh, because it really is like everywhere. It's awful, yeah. right? And, and I we don't want to, so it's both, we don't want, we, we don't want to support them. We want to, You know, make the political statement that Target, if this is what you're going to do, we're not going to support you in this. We're going to shop elsewhere, even if it's hard for us. Um, But also, too,
1: I just don't want to expose my kids to that. Yeah. And I think there's just getting the word out in some sense. Like, I don't know if you guys remember, but I had been to Target pretty early on when they had set up their their pride display. And I came in and I mentioned it in one of our team meetings and I had no warning. And, And it ended up being an opportunity to talk through some things with my kids. But there's there's an element to this of just just think about Target for a second. When you need to go in for Christmas lights or Halloween candy or Easter decorations or whatever, they're always in the back corner of the store. If this truly is a seasonal item, it, they have a back corner of the store where they get all their seasonal stuff. This was moved out front. There was no way for us to go anywhere in that store without walking right past that display. Like they, There's a very clear message that's being sent here. And parents could be blindsided by that had this word not gotten out. And I think part of this so-called boycott just was was parents doing that, explaining what they're going to run into if you go into Target.
2: The, that, that's right. And I think again, this is the yeah you know, the, the the thoughts that always go through my head, especially you look at a situation like Target, where Target is is not just you know if I always one of my, my things I struggle with with boycotts, especially in in. Today's modern woke culture, and you know, we've talked about this in other episodes with what, you know, the 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 SEC and 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 you know, honestly, the, the, the New York Stock Exchange and Nasdaq and all these guys have have done to force ESG and and DEI diversity, equity, inclusion policies on corporate America. You know, if, if you were to boycott every corporation, every company that has some pro LGBT policy or some woke ideology baked in or, or has a, you know, a pride flag up on something, you, you'd genuinely have no place to go, right? Like maybe Hobby Lobby, right? Um, and, 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 you know, Chick-fil-A at times, right? But, you know, so it, it's where we have to be, you know, from, from my perspective, we, we need to be, um, wise about what we determine we're going to boycott. Um, and if we're going to, you know, there's one thing I'm saying, I'm just going to personally decide not to, to go there. Or two, I'm going to try to lead an effort as a political movement. To if you're going to do that, and you don't actually, it, you know, it's one of the fundamental political lessons. If you're going to shoot at the king, you got to kill the king, right? <laughs> yeah. Like it, it. It. There's nothing that looks as as pitiful and almost as encouraging to the other side of. They called for a boycott of me, and it didn't hurt. So now I'm going to go further. Now this, it, it's almost like pouring gasoline on it. Um, but the 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 baseline of this with Target to, to your point. Mike, was that they weren't just doing sort of your standard, like, okay, you know, here's some rainbowy stuff. It was, they were saying, this is who we are as a company. This is what we think. And, and, and not just like, we're, we're pro, you know, LGBT or all this, like, we think this is for kids, right? You look at their, their materials were designed specifically for children, which is
1: at, at at a special level of evil. Um, that I think warranted saying, nope, we're out. Yeah. And it, was, it wasn't even that it was available. It was that it was front and center, I think is. is and that's the same thing that the, the Dodgers did, right? Where, again, like, you know, basically every sports
2: team has uh, some type of pride night or something like that at this point. But the Dodgers went out of their way to honor a drag group, right? Not, not just an LGBT group, but a drag group that, that is formed to mock and condemn Christianity and Catholicism in particular um and the idea that the media would spin this this uh, it's like the the our ladies of perpetual indulgence or something like that would try to per- spin this as oh it's just an education group no no it's not it's 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 blackface for for men uh targeting christians right i mean it is a- as offensive as, as you can get um and and that's that is worthy of of all the backlash uh, that they can have coming their way
1: yeah. They weren't even canceling the pride night. They were canceling this one specific group right. at their pride exactly. night that ignited the whole back right. in the Dodger situation.
3: I, I am a little um, one thing. I in I'm intrigued. Right. So you have certain movements get fired up like like boycotts, you know, so and so's got a book um, on the shelf at the store. And again, I'm not saying that that we don't need to be getting rid of some of these books that that are talking about you know different types of sexual activity going on between homosexuals or whatever, even heterosexuals for that point. But I'm saying we have seven gender clinics sterilizing kids, mutilating children. Why don't those efforts get as much momentum, you know, an outrage from? I'm talking about the Body of Christ. You know, I I can say something about you know Target having a book on the shelf. We're gonna. Boycott Target, everybody's sharing that on their social media. And then something where like, or or Nike has a shoe with six 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 on it, you know, from some rapper. And uh, you know, everybody's gonna talk about that for, for the next six months. But then you say, you know, we've got seven gender clinics, one of which, like one almost in every major city, and and folks don't move to the same degree for that. Like you have children physically being harmed in your neighborhood, right? Shouldn't that spark some degree of outrage and 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 activism? I don't know. Why why certain things get momentum and certain things don't? Do you think it's just a,
1: a matter of, I don't know, I guess, a, they feel like they have the ability to impact some of those maybe lesser things because they're already going to Target, and it's an easy decision to not go to Target versus how do you actively actively engage Maybe with this feel bigger
3: is political or yeah. whatever? Yeah. I don't know.
1: No. Yeah. Honestly, Dave, I think there's a, a lot of things that go
2: into it. And I don't think there's necessarily one answer. I think on, on the one front, you know, with target, you're, you're going into target once a week or once every other week, right. To, and, and so it, you, you see it right and a lot of folks never kind of wander into a children's hospital or if they do, they don't go by where that is. So I, I think that plays a part of it. I think, um, you know, quite frankly, and we we've seen this with lawmakers, um, and we saw this during COVID, right? The trust the medical experts mentality is a intimidating line, right? And so, you know, we're we're out here screaming on the mountaintop that, hey, they're they're cutting off the breasts and they're they're sterilizing kids with cross-sex hormones and puberty blocking drugs. And and people seem to they're 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 almost afraid of it because they don't you know, you, you go talk to, when, when you go talk to the so-called medical experts or their lobbyists, they're like, oh, how dare you, You know, we, that this is not what's happening. And here's this study and here's this and this, and they almost kind of bully you into denying your senses, right? It's, it's very George Orwell-y, right? Um, and, uh, as opposed to saying, yeah, but I, I just know, again, it's, it's one of the things I always go back to. Like if I, If if I cut off my arm and I put a, you know, a trunk on my head, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't make me an elephant, right? That makes me a a dude without an arm and and something stuck to my forehead, right? If I, if I remove some, if I I remove somebody's genitalia, uh, a man's genitalia, that doesn't make him a woman. That makes him a man without his genitalia, right? Like that's, that's just the reality of how this works. And, and the left has done such an effective job in these cases
3: of, um, of really uh, bullying us and go to silence. This is why I feel like the these message, the messaging around these issues, very important core issues around the image of God, children and family, have to come from the pulpits. We cannot rely on the media, right? Mainstream media, 4, 6, 10, or even Fox, you know, in the state of Ohio, we can't allow these other outside groups to message this stuff. It has to come From folks who have a biblical worldview, they understand their people, they live in the communities where these things are happening, Um, but yet we have this political barrier, right, that that it's too political. And and, and family, listen, one pastor said last week or or a couple weeks ago, um, government is God's thing, right? He's got an order for government for the family, for the church, for society, right? King, lawmaker, judge in society, father, mother, child in the family. Um, what, other, what other government did I? Oh, church, um, you know, father, son, Holy Spirit in the church. Um, and then politics is how all of that comes together and gets worked out. And that tends to be man's thing. But everything can be deemed political or can be politicized. And just because the enemy says something is politicized, it might be politically incorrect. How in the world is it that we just step back and say we're not going to touch that because the enemy said no? Yeah, man. It's a good word. Well, speaking of the political process, I know David.
1: You want to talk a little bit about things that are going on over at the statehouse? Okay, never mind. He doesn't want to talk about. I
3: don't that. want to talk. It's, got, it's a necessary evil. That's what I <laughs> want. I want to. I want man. It's a necessary evil. Tripping to talk down about. here at the statehouse, family.
0: <laughs>
1: well, we're at the point in in the state of Ohio where they're working on the state budget, we're down to the last few weeks. We've got a little bit of clarity on some things that are being worked through and just wanted to take a moment to share some of that with our, with our listeners and you guys are much more deep in the weeds on that than I am. (laughs) So take it away. Yeah. You know, I, I think
2: whenever you're listening to this, we're, we're we're in the middle of the process and, um, we're still kind of unpacking, uh, where things stand. And so just for, for context, um, you know the budget has to be passed essentially by July first, right? That's that's by law that that's what it how it needs to happen. There's been a few times they've extended it out. but uh, and, you know, upwards of sixty to eighty percent of the actual policy passed in a given two- year general assembly session happens in this budget, right? It's about a four thousand page document. it's it's huge. um it's it's how we decide to do everything, right. And, for us, there, there's a lot of things that we care about at CCV in this. Um, uh, but, you know, in this particular cycle, the the biggest thing we've cared about is backpack bill, right? What what we've been working for is could can we get uh, the backpack bill uh, into the budget? Um, we've we've now seen this. So the House, the, the governor introduced his budget and had an expansion of school choice, uh, but it wasn't the full backpack bill, right? Um, the the House then passed their budget, um, and they expanded what the governor put in, but they didn't go full backpack either. Um, and so now we've the, the Senate just introduced theirs. Um, and it, it honestly is an, another significant step forward. and and so far as to say they are actually introduced a budget that makes every kid in the state eligible uh, for a scholarship yes, right one degree, or which is degree. which is incredible, right? We would say it's not, that's not true. What, what they introduced though is not true what we would call backpack funding universal uh, school choice uh, because what what they have on there is is what's called a means test, right? So um, basically the, the way it would work is uh, as they introduced it is for those who are, are at 450% or below of the federal poverty level. You would get the full scholarship amount, and they actually increased that scholarship amount too, which is a massive win. We're at 6-0 in, uh, yeah. six hundred one hundred eighty four, yeah, sixty one hundred dollars K to eight and eighty four hundred dollars uh, nine to twelve per year, uh, which is incredible. That's up from fifty five and hundred and seventy five hundred. So we're really excited about that, and we're really excited that they've made every kid eligible for something. Um, you, you'll have some some folks are saying this is this is universal because every kid is getting something. Um, that's not our perspective on it. We would say uh, universal means every kid is eligible for the same thing, um, and and we have we have concerns about means testing both on the the practical implementation of it, and it it's not going to help us realize the the full benefits of of universal school choice where where money follows the kid around. Um, so you know, we I think by by the time folks hear this, we'll have our our statement out on it that this is a significant step forward. Um, and and we applaud uh, Senate President Huffman and the Senate for making for making every kid eligible. Right, this will be, if not the biggest, one of the biggest uh, uh, expansions of of school choice in in our state history. Um, we've got concerns about means testing, right? And we're we're talking to members about that. And and I think from from our perspective, we we feel an obligation to say, hey, we we still got a ways to go. Um, and, and, you know, for, for those of us who have been working so hard on, on the backpack bill, we want to say, guys, this is a major move forward. We were hoping that we would get it in the budget this year. And we've been working towards that. This doesn't get us there, but th- there's optimism to think that we, we can get there and, and get there in the next few years. If, if this is the a- actual final product. Um, so we're still, again, this is, uh, I mentioned, it's a, a, a 4,000 page document, you know, um, David's, you know, making his readers go overtime over here <laughs> just because <laughs> literally
1: smoking exactly just pouring
3: out of you know, doing word searches and trying to see what folks are sneaking in and, um, you know, had to had to reach out to several members today on um, on something that that was in there that probably shouldn't. So bringing things to their attention and uh, did you really mean for that to be in there? Um, it's a lot of work, but uh, you know that's why CCV is here to do it exactly. And, and again, it it's
2: it is. Um, it's a part of this process that we work in and 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 why we need
1: to care. And I, actually, I think that the conversation we're going to have next uh, kind of highlights why all this matters. Yeah. And as always, as we unpack the budget and find things worth bringing to our our network's attention, we certainly will. So be sure that you're listening to the narrative and subscribe to our emails, following our social channels and all those types of things. And we'll get the word out. But. To your point, Aaron, the interview we've got coming up, we're going to talk with Russ Vote about a lot of things in the financial and budgeting world. Uh, maybe more on the federal level than the state level, but they're still connected. I will. Say, I, I have to apologize because I like, you know, what, well, let what me rephrase think? that. We're not
2: going to have a conversation. Aaron is going to have Aaron a, Aaron conversation, a conversation with <laughs> us, but I got really excited about this one. Just nerd I, it out. And, and the funny thing is, we're, we're going to give you a peek behind the curtain here. In that I was like, man, we're like we 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 end up talking a lot about the transgender issue uh, because it's a, a massive burning fire. And I was like, hey, you know, let, let's let's do a, a, have a conversation not on this, but it's it's one of the reasons why I love Russ is because Russ was the, he was Trump's um, cabinet appointee over the Office of Budget Management, um, and uh, but he recognizes how much uh, the social issues uh, impact the fiscal issues. You're, you're going to hear that in the conversation. And so we, we ended up back there eventually. And, and this is one of these things that sometimes, you know, Maria working, my, my wife working at the Colson Center, sometimes we, we'll, we'll look at each other and say, you know, do other couples when they go out to dinner with friends, do they always end up talking about like transgenderism and abortion too, or is it just us? And um, it, it, it
1: might just be us, but you know, that, that's okay. We, we, we care about this stuff a lot. So, Well, stay tuned. It's a great conversation and we'll have it for you right after this when the narrative continues. Hey, narrative listeners, you know, Christians in the marketplace today face more unique and challenging threats than ever before. Businesses are following woke capitalism, chambers of commerce are beholden to social justice, and secular activists are chipping away Christians' First Amendment rights. As Ohio's only Christian chamber of commerce, the Christian Business Partnership stands in the gap to advocate for, to educate, and to celebrate Christian business owners. Joining the partnership also allows businesses to provide their employees with health care insurance, workers' compensation, and exclusive banking and educational discounts. To find out more and to join, go to cbpohio.org. That's cbpohio.org. And we're back on the narrative. Mike Andrews, Aaron Baer, David Mahan, joined now by Russ Vogt, who joined the Office of Management and Budget when President Trump took office. Vogt served as acting director, then as the 42nd director of OMB for nearly two years. Prior to serving in the Trump administration, Russ spent nearly 20 years working in Congress and with grassroots and public policy organizations. Prior to that, he worked on Capitol Hill serving as the policy director for the House Republican Conference and as the executive director of the Republican Study Committee and as a legislative assistant for US Senator Phil Graham. Russ, it's so great to have you with us today on the narrative.
0: Good to be with you guys. Thanks. Well, Russ, I've been friends for a
2: little bit a while through fantasy football and all that, but I always remember uh actually my first time even coming across you was when you were uh you were Getting appointed by President Trump to the Office of of uh, Budget Management, and uh, you you've squared off with with Bernie Sanders, uh, and and I actually we we wrote an editorial here about the Bernie Sanders test uh, that he tried to he tried to apply a new standard to say if you are a Christian with evangelical, you know, conservative beliefs, you're unfit for office. Uh, you know, I, I want to dive into this most recent budget and all that, but. I want to hear that story too about how all that came together before we get 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 kicked off here.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, Bernie took offense with John 316, uh, and said that, you know, Orthodox Christianity is not something that allows you to be fit uh, and serve in the United States government. I think our founders would have had a dramatically different view, but you know, what he meant for for evil, God meant for good, and we got a national conversation about uh, the exclusivity of of Jesus Christ in terms of what he did on the cross for our salvation, and that was a very, very good thing for the country
2: absolutely. and I, I think Russ, Russ, this is going to tie into this this whole broader conversation around uh, you know the 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 federal budget and and all that the 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 deep state, if you will, in, in washington d c the, the swamp as, as President Trump called it. but how prevalent? is that ideology that, that, that mindset that Bernie Sanders kind of, you know, put out there in that, in that hearing that day when you were, you were before the committee, what, how, how often do you run into that, uh, in Washington?
0: Uh, often. And sometimes it's under the guise of, um, putting it your private views and putting those front center. And I remember we were prepping for that confirmation hearing and we, we, we knew it was going to come up. um, but there would a lot of be some coaching that said, "Okay, well, just say that's my private viewpoints, and it won't impact who I am as a director." I said, "I can't say that. It, it's fundamental to who I am uh, as a person, as a direct, as a potential deputy director at the time, and then director." So um, you see it on the left in the terms of that they 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 flat out reject the viewpoint orthodox in their mind. Uh, they've defined Christianity in in to to. It, expunge anything that they have issues with in the modern world.
2: One of the reasons we changed our name from citizens for community values to center for Christian virtue, um, is, you know, there, there's sort of been an underlying assumption that even Christians and conservatives have assented you know, consented to over the, the last few decades that there's, you know, your worldview, my worldview, and th- but then there's the, the, the secular worldview which is the, the, the publicly acceptable perspective. Um, and, and we, you know, there, there's this, there's this third part that is, there's some type of perfectly neutral perspective that, that isn't religious in any way, or, or has no moral, moral foundation. And, and we've somehow, we've even gone along with that at times of elevating this, this secular perspective, which has boxed this. I mean, we've all sort of seen different ways that that's boxed us into a corners on things like transgenderism now, right? That, that, how we've, we've created that, uh, that, that perspective. And, and,
0: and, and think about the gay marriage debate. When was the, when we were going through that debate, did you ever hear anyone appeal to scripture? Right. You know, it, it was always on the basis of, well, you know, and some of these were, our leading people and they were at the, at the forefront of the debate. And I don't, I don't actually question their play calls because they were working within an environment that was a long time in the company. But the arguments that they were making were, you know, a child needs a mom and a dad. Okay, that's that's convincing to a certain extent, but we also know tons of examples in which uh, a mom or a child doesn't have a dad. And, and yet we don't... We think that's unfortunate, but we also don't... Uh, you know, cults say that they shouldn't be in that, in that family or that home because they don't have a dad, right? Uh, the dad might have passed away or whatever, or be the product of an unfortunate divorce. And so we've got to be much more coherent in the viewpoints that we have, and Christianity has coherence to it. And we should think it through, what, what would a public policy based on that look like in this situation? And we're not going to always win. But we can at least have a coherent public policy when we go into the public square and have these debates on the floor of the House and the Senate or the state legislature.
2: Well, and 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 certainly, I, I love the the gay marriage conversation on this because, you know, or at the very least, not look down at at folks who are just saying homosexuality is a sin. This is why I believe uh, in, in a, a a policy that says marriage should only be, be between a man and a woman. I think thinking back to those debates, it's again this is one of those influential things from the CCV perspective of why we made the name changes we don't you know you look at the, a state like ohio where 61 62% of the voters in ohio voted for marriage between a man and a woman in 2004 and it wasn't because on the whole they understood the good government public policy perspective of incentivizing family formation is good for children to be raised but it's the most stable environment for a child to be raised in is by their biological mom and dad and it's you know all of these good you know arguments but most of them were voting this way because they had a, a moral belief, a religious belief, a Christian belief that said homosexuality is sinful and and we, sh- we should not be you know at its core with what what marriage policy is is we're giving tax breaks for people to do something and we shouldn't be giving people tax breaks to do something that is uh, incentivizing them to be separated or, or be drawn away from their creator. Uh, that 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 by its very definition is an unjust
0: policy and you're seeing you know they 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 had great wisdom right like they knew they were on the front end of an lgbt movement that was going to have profound implications and now you get to you know drag queens in schools and and, and libraries and you know everyone's shocked and amazed and yet this is a natural byproduct outflow of an agenda that you know, the, the common man and woman across the country uh, has had concerns about and and informed their opposition, like you said, to, to gay marriage. I think more and more, you know, we're going to have to have coherent uh, rationales for why we view things. And ultimately, uh, that's how you win debates, uh, is you actually have a coherent uh, viewpoint and you persuade someone and you don't try to just like get by based on the pollster's latest latest talking points. Yeah,
2: and and you don't shy away from making the 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 moral argument, right? I mean, again, you look at uh, what the left is doing. Every, I mean, Pride Month is a it's a moral statement, right? Equality Ohio is a moral statement, right? Everything they their 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 arguments are 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 they're they're trying to make a moral appeal to people, and and yet somehow we uh, we're so afraid to, to to do the same when we actually have morality on our side and virtue. Um, so sorry, I, I I've taken us way off track here, but I I love this conversation. I think it's the 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 most most pivotal one. But I, I want to get into the the conversation with you, Russ, on uh, on the, the the federal budget. Right, we we just went through this process uh, in, uh, in in Washington. Uh, it was you know as as always, you know it, it's it's one of these things that pops up and it dominates the news cycle for you know two or three weeks and. We're told we are on the brink of uh, of the government shutting down and the American experiment ending and all you know all of the terrible things that are going to happen. Um, but Russ, can you just before we actually talk about what was just passed and, and the issues with that, can you talk about what this process is, why it matters, and 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 how actually it works?
0: So. To zoom out a little bit, in in 2023, in what I would call a post-constitutional world where the left has walked away from the Constitution and lives on the basis of precedent that they have secured themselves walking away from the Constitution, um, we're in this moment where we don't have a House and a Senate that operates the way you used to be able to understand it and what we would have learned in our American civics classes. What you have is a cartel that largely operates behind closed doors. Congress delegates authority to the administration to literally write the bills. They delegate that authority. Then it happens at an agency. Agency makes all the tradeoffs themselves, propounds it. There's no debate with the people's representatives. And so what all of that has done is draw the actual action off the floor where the members don't have a say. The members that do have a say are committee chairmen and leadership. They're part of the cartel. Who doesn't have a say, really until January for a glimmer of moment, we'll talk about that in a second, is the rank and file members, which is why members come to Congress and they're like, this is terrible. We didn't have any desire to be a part of an institution where we have no say. And so they become backbenchers. Well, the reason why you hear so much about debt limits and appropriations once a year is because those are the only remaining leverage points in which the votes are m- matter of those backbenchers. So the cartel does all of this work and then they have to basically get permission once every year or other year on the debt limit, in the case of the debt limit, to be able to continue to uh, keep the training going, uh, to keep to keep this, this whole... Uh, Way of of life and business operating on, on their terms, and if you have if you seize that moment, then you're accused of taking down the known universe, uh, and 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 that all uh, havoc will break out, and it's just not true. And you you kind of talk through the arguments of what people think, but it's all scare tactics because so much is riding on it. So much of the, the the Wall Street gravy train is riding it. So much of the deep administrative state is riding on it. Has it can't become something where real th- change occurs because too much is riding on it for the powers that be. Of course, that's why we have to seize those opportunities. And I totally I get the pushback. Often, well, you know, here we go, another debt limit conversation. I don't care what you have the debate about. You can pick any public policy but it, you're going to have to use the debt limit as a leverage point you're going to have to use the spending process as a leverage point or you don't have any leverage points so we can have, we can have a large agenda setting conversation many different factors so we're headed towards a bad place and you don't ever get to know when you're over over the edge it just doesn't happen that way in these kinds of situations and yet if I'm a statesman the only thing the thing that i prioritize more than that is what I would call the deep administrative state—the woke and weaponized regime—that is funding a lot of the cultural viewpoints that we hate. Department of Education is funding critical race theory pretty much down the line. Health Human Services is funding through CMS a mandate to be able to force uh, gender affirming care. We wouldn't call it gender affirming care. We would call it. Chemical castration and, and body mutilation, derelization. Yeah. We would we would put the real terms on that, and and yet that's what you're funding with the Health and Human Service. And so, if you can't, if you don't starve that that beast of money, then you're never going to have an impact on it. So what we've been saying is this debt limit needed to be the leverage point where we radically defund these agencies that are woke and weaponized. And we were headed down that path, and ultimately, Kevin McCarthy made a decision. He wasn't going to go, and he would rather be in coalition with Hakeem Jeffries and, and have a bipartisan bill. Before we
2: start unpacking that a little bit more, I, I want to drill in on a couple other things. You know, there every now and again, I'll see a bill come out, uh, and I think it, it'll have bipartisan support from from either either party on this that'll say, hey, we need to just get out of this cycle of of... You know, having a debt ceiling, and they'll they'll try to 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 waive that. Can, can you talk about what that idea is? And you know, I'll, I'll cut to why it's a bad idea. But can you talk about what what
0: that yeah, bill? I is would just say that's fifth, you know, you talking about fifth gen aircraft? That that's fifth gen cartel right there. I mean, they they innovate. They would prefer not to come to Congress and have to pass the debt limit or the appropriations bills. There was another one. In this bill, that there was a push to have all appropriations on auto. Okay, really? We're, we do we do that with Social Security and Medicare? How's that working out right now? Like, when do we have? We you you want that? They want to take Congress out of this as much as possible and have all spending on autopilot. And as a result, what that does is it means on an annual basis, the members who actually get elected from an election don't have any power or leverage points to be able to represent us. On the things that matter uh, most and what happens when everything's dumped behind closed doors at eight a- administrations and agencies it's it's the ruling class paradigms that are, are are doctrine and so you know they may have disagreements as to between you know establishment Republicans and and Democrats on the margins but largely the left wants cultural disintegration and the right wants uh economic uh, deregulation and they the, the two of them conspire and move in the same direction on two boats in, on the river that we've been on for, for a very long time. And so you don't have any ability from an election to get off the river. It's just going downhill. And I think the issues that we've been focusing on, and you all have as well, are those cultural flashpoints, the cultural war, in which the American people, many of them informed by faith, are saying, get us off the river. Why it? Why do we have a political class that gives us tax cuts and gay marriage? Yep. Why do we have a political class that gives us a little bit of deregulation and drag queens in our public libraries? Get us off the river, and if you can't, that's where this is headed, right? If you can't have that debate in public office and you're not you're not on board with fighting cultural battles, I'm sorry, but we just need a new class of, of politicians that that know what time it is and, and know the moment and what's necessary to be able to tackle and save our country.
3: You know, what so many of our um, folks are, are concerned about is that these issues are so deep, right? Like, like you just explained there, um, how many levels and facets there are to the budget, just the budget conversation in D.C. Um, how could anyone possibly be able to keep up with all of that? other thing I like that that you said is that we have to do a better job of identifying um who our state representatives our elected officials are that we actually are going to support um you know to, to most folks I talk to it's either r or d you know if if you're an r then you know that's good enough for me uh we win right Ohio's a red state. I don't see it as a red state. I see it as a very purple state but um but but you know republicans run run the show here. But yet we have, uh, you know, we've got drug bills, we've got casino bills, um, and like you say, we've we're, we've probably got five gender bills right now, and I don't know if any of them uh, are are going to get across the finish line. We hope they are. We we fight for them to get across the finish line. Um, but how how in the world can the average Ohioan know who is the right, you know, person of, of the party to vote for? or where do I get the details of the budget battle? Um, It's just almost impossible to them that they're saying to, to find out who do I vote for and and what do I vote for anymore? I think there are two
0: indicators for whether a member is on the right track. And number one is what is their appetite for conflict? We're not going to save the country without a little bit of healthy conflict. And so there are most politicians run from confrontation and, Mm -hmm. You need members that wake up in the morning and eat it for breakfast. So that's one. (laughs) Number two is, are they getting called names? Are they getting called uh, bigots, nationalists, appeasers, racists? If they're getting called names and they have a track record for being people of character and wisdom and conservative, then there's a reason for it. And it normally they are right over the target on an incredibly important cultural battle in which the left and the right, I, I say the establishment right, do not want them talking about it. And so, you know, I, I, I think that's why Tucker was so um, was such a, a critical flashpoint for the left, because he did this on a nightly basis. That's, you know, Donald Trump was very similar in that in that standpoint. And we have cultural battles. We've been su- seduced to, on the right to saying that politics is is uh, downstream from culture. Well, we're that's not true anymore, A. And B, we're not going to save the country under that assumption. And so we've got to change our viewpoint on members of Congress. If you came here running to just, just, and I'm a deregulation guy. I was the deregulation czar for Trump. I get it. I love it. But if that's why you come to Washington DC alone, I'm sorry, that is not a sufficient reason to be in office. I'm I'm really sorry. It's just not enough. If you can't go and have a debate about critical race theory in Department of Education, we we need we need higher caliber individuals with with more conviction to know and to see the danger ahead of these types of of ideologies that have been killing us. So that's how i would look at it and i and and i think you dumb it down by uh who's over the target and how much is are they are 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 people squawking about and and gravitate to those because they're normally having a debate on a key leverage point and when that debate is then they can get their 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 message out
2: russ that's that's really interesting and i think again it's it's one of these things that we misunderstand about about how the left or, you know, Marxists think broadly, you know, in that, you know, we on the right tend to have, we tend to think through things as fiscal issues and social issues, uh, and, you know, and kind of have this weird divide in how we look at things. But what we've seen from the left time and time again, is that the, the fiscal issues are all just a tool to advance the social issues. So you know. So again, like I think the 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 best example of this is uh, is big pharma, which is you know typically big pharma is the 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 bad guy. They're the big corporation. You know, ten years ago, that's 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 who they were, right? And then all of a sudden, we get in COVID, and now they are the savior of all things. Um, and it's, it's right. about w- w- whatever is advancing the you know the the social agenda. Now 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 they're the best guys because they're they're producing the puberty blockers and. And cross-sex hormones that are 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 driving these things. Um it 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 the the way they understand and interpret uh you know physical issues and social issues is just very different than the way we typically talk about them on the right. So Russ, I I want to get into then you know, in the last about 10 minutes we got with you here, this most recent process. Um and you know, what happened in it. Um why again from from a lot of the, the folks who were really excited about what happened in the speakers vote where you had really conservatives leverage pressure like i've never seen in our lifetime um why there's some disappointment that it it didn't produce the results we were hoping for in this debate and and, and what happened with it and and what and then you know where we go from here but can, can you kind of unpack what what
0: happened in this deal what the concerns are with it and and uh, how it happened Sure. So in January we basically worked with members and the members the 20 were able to secure what I called a power sharing agreement which we got beyond this notion that all republicans are the same but let's okay you have mostly establishment republicans that just happy to be here caucus and then you have the freedom fighters made up of the house freedom caucus and 20 of them leverage coalition government not unlike what you would see in Israel or something like that where you know, you have Likud, but you also have some other smaller party, and they're not like backbenchers. they're They're a they're a valuable member of the coalition, and you don't make decisions that are at, in against their interest. And so that was revolutionary. It was first of all is was able to take real power in the main committees, the Rules Committee in the House Appropriations Committee which is the first time the Rules Committee has been independent of leadership since Sam Rayburn was speaker. So this was real. I called it, I tried to explain it to people, as Old Testament versus New Testament. So you had to really think through everything from the standpoint of that power-sharing agreement. And that's the way that they were headed for six months. They passed things with with, uh, all Republicans. They passed a $5 trillion bill that included a debt limit increase. No one ever thought that was possible, but these people were governing. They were, they were governing as a coalition. And then Kevin McCarthy goes to the negotiating table and doesn't tell anyone and rips up the power sharing agreement and produces a, a bill that has no savings and, and cuts in it. And it's effectively a status quo bill from the standpoint of keeping these agencies at their current post-COVID level, their their President Biden level. And we're not going to have the debates that I just said we need to have that are necessary to both save money and save the country on these cultural flashpoints. And so um, you add to that that they really didn't done the deal, period. And so that's going to be an issue. And then I've never seen such dishonesty with them selling a bill. So you know we had to spend three or four days unpacking what they were doing, and every claim came down to. Uh, uh, fiction, and so they would say, "Well, this creates the same administrative pago that Russ put in when he worked for President Trump." Uh, yeah, except you put in a, a a complete waiver, so the the Biden um, OMB director can waive the entirety of the rule, so it doesn't work. So that's why everything is so hot right now, and I think what you're seeing as as in in real time. Uh, a rule went down yesterday for the first time in 20 years. That's the procedural mechanism for how a bill is considered. went down for the first time in 20 years, and it's because if you get rid of your coalition partner, you should have a vote of no confidence. Uh, and they're chewing, taking the path at this point of saying, if you want to pass procedural rules, go talk to Majority Leader Hakeem Jeffries. He'll get you the votes. But until you come back and we have a reckoning, and that reckoning is literally happening in real time, Um, that we're not going to give you votes on procedural rules, uh, in in anywhere the same rate that you have enjoyed them in previous past. And that's a very healthy, healthy debate to have. Um, and I think everything hinges on that.
2: One of the things I think I saw you, you write about it, Russ was, you know, this, this debt ceiling, this whole conversation we have is basically... Maybe the only leverage point a member, uh, you know, you think of a member of Congress and has a two-year term, In in their two-year term, they really only have, you know, potentially two votes, maybe three, depending on how long this thing gets extended out, where they have real leverage, right? It, it, it's not much different than what we talk about here on the policy team at, at CCV all the time, which is, you know, the most important vote a member makes is the vote for speaker, um and then the second would be their budget vote right that's where the vast majority yeah. of these things get worked out right and and we're 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 in the middle right now of our our state budget uh as well and it's it's you you we're, we're I, it makes me feel like we're in good company with you that we're we're equally dealing with uh issues on on our side but um you know the the with this deal you know one of the things i think i saw you post was that they really kind of surrendered that power for the Remainder of the Biden administration is that is that right? Is it, is that a a right way of
0: classifying it, or how? What was that situation there, Aaron? It's worse than that. It's worse than that. It was our it was Republicans' idea. I mean i I assumed that this was this was a demand by Biden. No, this was Kevin McCarthy's idea. Here, let me give you a second year. We wouldn't want to have to consider this in the middle of a presidential election year. I mean, are, are you kidding me? Like, this is this is what this is leadership that you know that we're dealing with. If you don't laugh about it; you are going to cry just because there's this just sheer malpractice of it. Is just is just mind boggling.
2: Let me ask Russ here, and and I I know I am dominating this, and I, I will say I I warned uh, Mike and David before this conversation. I said this is my like political nerd out one. You know, we we have a lot of good like theologians come on, and and you could probably you, you would hang with all them as well. But this is this is I love this stuff. This is fascinating to me. But we, where do we actually practically go from here now, Russ? What's 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 next? You know, you're talking about right now in real time. Some of this stuff is getting worked out. Um, but but for those of us who would, you know, I, I will often say, you know, I remember I, I talked to when when Senator Vance uh, ran here. I I kind of joked with him that you know you're you're getting elected to to basically play defense, help keep the bad stuff off. We're going to try and go on offense in the states. But I know folks like you are actually trying to go on offense in, in, in Washington, trying to do that. So where where do we go from here and in, in, in Washington to actually try to rein some of these things in after this deal?
0: I believe that every cultural battle is going on offense. I really believe that. Um, and defense is playing within the sandbox that they have tried to put us on, in for for decades, really kind of. Uh, caricature of, of Buckley's fusionism. And when we go after uh, the cultural issues, um, we're forcing the left to defend things that they've never had to defend. I mean, Kimberly Crenshaw, one of the leaders and founders of critical race theory, hasn't had to talk about critical race theory on a national media probably in, ever. And it shows. And the left doesn't have to talk about it either. And when Joe Biden wants to hit me on Medicaid cuts, and then I want to talk instead about uh, the, the 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 surgeries that people are doing uh, as part of their gender affirming care and what that is, uh, I want to have that debate and that's that's the kind of thing where we're going on offense. If you can get people that are willing to take the risk on and willing to take on being called names of uh, from AOC and other things, so I think that's what is going on offense is, and that desperately has to happen at the federal level. We. We have this mentality right now at the federal level where all this stuff, the offense is happening in the states. I mean, we've talked about CRT for two years, and no, none of the federal members, with very limited exceptions like Dan Bishop and Bob Good, have gotten up to speed on it to be able to talk about this in, in the right way and understand it.
1: Russ, this has been a fascinating conversation to hear how intertwined all of these ideas are, and we thank you so much for your time here joining us on The Narrative today. And just want to invite our audience that if they want to connect with Russ, they can do so through his organization's Center for Renewing America. And you can find more information on resources and writings at americarenewing.com. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Narrative, presented by CCV and produced by Wessler Media. If you found today's episode insightful, leave us a review or rating and subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. We're your hosts, Mike Andrews, Aaron Baer, and David Mahan, and we'll see you next time on The Narrative.